From the WNET Group in New York, hi, I'm Elisa Lichtenbaum, and welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our content. In the feature film, Inez and Doug and Kira, when a bipolar woman commits suicide, her sister and her sister's fiance become entangled in an attempt to discover what pushed her to the brink. I've been having trouble sleeping, and I know why. Um, it's because my friend died. My best friend, actually. Cancer? Razor blades? I'm Inez, and I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic, I guess. And I'm bipolar. Were you together? No. I'm, uh, I'm with her sister. <laughs> it's my <laughs> sister, Kira. <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, Doug is the guy from AA I told you I was bringing. Oh, right. What took you so long? Well, I had to take a moment to get broken up with. I can't tell if this is normal grief or something else. I could just as easily accuse you of being a little too good at coping because you're totally zen about this. Okay, Doug, what you don't seem to understand is I have had my entire lifetime to prepare for this. This is what happens when you bury people, Kira. They can come back to haunt you. Joining us to shed light on the making of Inez and Doug and Kira is Julia Cotts, the film's writer, director, and editor. Welcome to the WNET Up Next podcast, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm also the co-producer, but <laughs> and I appear in one scene. <laughs> ah, yes, 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 I did. I did spot you and a couple of other familiar faces in the film. Um, it truly is an honor to have you here because this film is so incredibly moving and unexpectedly timely with its subject matter. We should let our lovely listener know a fun detail, which is that you actually do lots of work for Real 13 and many of the other programs that air on 13. I do. So when I graduated from film school, while I was trying to get my feature scripts off the ground, I have developed a career as a professional editor in both narrative and documentary worlds. And I was lucky enough to fall in with Channel 13. And I started with NYC Arts. Maria Storian was the producer who gave me a break to start editing some short pieces for them. And I have been working as a freelancer for Channel 13 for over 11 years, I think now. And I've been lucky enough to collaborate with many different producers on many, many different shows. One of the shows uh, has been Real 13 for the last couple of years. As I tell people, I get to, I get paid for watching movies, which is fantastic. Like, what better job could you possibly have? It's a dream job for a filmmaker and for somebody who loves films. Absolutely. For a cinephile or for a filmmaker, uh, which I am both, it's a, it, that, that project is a little bit of a dream job. Thank you for sharing that background and how wonderful that, you know, that you get to work on Real 13. And I know you also work on great performances. And as you said, you've done work for NYC Arts. Why don't we talk about Inez and Doug and Kira and tell the lovely listeners a bit about the story of the film. There are two twin sisters and one of them happens to commit suicide, Inez. And that's the start of the film. And the rest of the film is spent figuring out how the two people closest to her process the grief 
And the two people closest to her are her twin sister, Kira, and Kira's fiance, Doug, who also happened to be Inez's best friend. So the way these two people are processing the grief is, it turns out to be different between the two of them. And Doug kind of ends up spiraling, trying to figure out the reason for why the suicide happened. What's so fascinating is the contrast between the mourning process that Kira's going through and Doug, where Doug seems really obsessed. You know, he's constantly pouring through these. There are tons and tons of photos and he, he's sitting in the bathtub where she killed herself, trying desperately to figure out why she killed herself. And as somebody watching the film, I felt very trapped in that world with him, you know, which I think is a compliment to you as a filmmaker, the way you can create that, not only like you're watching a mystery, but also feeling that obsession. And then also just feeling the way that Inez's presence is ruling over both of them, even after she's gone. Also a huge compliment to Michael Trenas, the actor who plays Doug, the way he was able to convey all of that. He did such an amazing job. But yeah, that's one of the things that was interesting to me was trying to tell the story of a person through basically the memories of, I mean, when we're gone, that's that's how we live on if we do, for however long we do, is through the memories of the people left behind. It's interesting because once your story, once you are gone, the control over your story is left up to the people beyond you. So, so one of the things that this film is for me is that it's trying to piece together a mosaic portrait of a person who's gone, who has no agency over the narrative anymore. And really it's told through flashbacks, impressions, objects left behind. And there are all these things being revealed about her that as you're watching it, you're thinking, oh my goodness, she would be, these were secrets that she was guarding closely. It's sort of painful to think about somebody being gone and then they're, I don't want to say they're dirty laundry, but it's almost like, you know, they're, Emotional life is being turned inside out. It's very, very powerful to watch it unfold and also just the way that we have little pieces of the story, little clues being revealed in different ways. For instance, the narrative structure is very fascinating and complex because you have present tense, things being revealed and told in the present tense. Then you have these flashback scenes and then these really marvelous, surreal, kind of haunting at a certain point, it was almost Rosemary's baby-esque kind of uh, dream sequences. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, was that something that you knew was going to be an essential part of the storytelling when you started writing the film? So it's been a while since I started writing the script. So I don't recall exactly when the decision was made to have that very complex narrative structure but basically the film takes place in three different time spaces the first one is the present which starts at the wake post-funeral and moves forward of the grief process the second time space is the past which happens in flashback out of order so they're not chronological and then the third time space is sort of a dreamscape, which is Doug's dreams, which gradually turn into hallucinations as he starts back with substance abuse. And they kind of all interweave and come together at the very end. It was very interesting, first of all, putting it together as a script. I remember I had all my scenes on index cards, 
and I had them spread out over the floor of my bedroom. And my cousin came in to my room and she said, you've lost your mind because I was basically like (laughs) sprawled out with these index cards everywhere. And they were really, there were so many of them and I was just trying to like fit them together. The way that it ultimately did come together in the script is very intentional. And in this one, it's like, it's so carefully structured. It might seem haphazard because it's out of order, but it is actually incredibly structured on purpose. So scripts are generally like filmed out of sequence unless you have a ton of money or unless you're like one car Y filming in in Asia where you just get to like construct the entire thing as you go along. Like in America, things are filmed out of order just for budgetary reasons. However, our order was out of order. So it's super challenging for the production designers and especially for actors because actors come in, they're like, where am I? Like, what happened? What has happened? And I'm like, oh, my God, so much that, so much happened. Um, yeah. What I ended up doing is I ended up creating a timeline of, I actually, when I write, I work with Excel a lot. How so? So what I did was I did a breakdown of the scenes, how they happen. And then I realized, like, I need to assign a specific date to everything that happens in the present And also all the flashbacks. And I was specific enough to just like look up the calendar and be like, okay, in 1997, this would have been a Wednesday, Wednesday, December 12th or whatever. I attached a specific date to every single scene so that you could sort. Right. And I sent it out to everybody in cast and crew. And I said, okay, you can just, you can sort this. And it definitely helped people to orient both cast and crew and where the heck we were because um, it is confusing enough to begin with shooting out of order. But the fact that our order is out of order was even more complex. So yes, there definitely had to be like that extra tool of orienting people and definitely extra like, okay, let's figure out where we are in this scene. Like when we're shooting. That master timeline must've been, such a godsend for everyone involved because I did notice that the flashbacks were, it's like another great storytelling technique because with a mystery, you're not necessarily discovering clues in a way that is logical and sequential and makes sense. Yeah, you're absolutely right in the sense that like in a mystery, the clues that uh, you think of that help you solve the mystery don't come to you necessarily in a sequential order. And that's one of the reasons that the past flashbacks are out of order. Another reason is because that is just the way memory works is that the way you remember a person is not necessarily like, oh, what happened last year and the year before and the year before. Like you just have these, these impressions of a person, right? On top of that, one of the main reasons actually that the past is structured the way that it is, is in order to form the viewer's emotional relationships to the characters. Because one of the, one of the earliest or earlier memories is the hammock scene with the two sisters together. Because I, I used to have it like later on and I realized through some help actually Kevin Alexander gave me that note where he was like this should be earlier on because you need to see the love between the bond between these sisters way earlier. I'm so glad that you brought up that hammock scene because it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the film because it's so beautiful it's shot so beautifully there's this beautiful sunlight 
there's this beautiful motion of the hammock swinging back and forth. And you really see the sisters' affection for each other. And they're laughing and they're joking. And it also is such an interesting contrast to so many of the other scenes, which are interior shots, whether you're in the house, whether it's the many, many scenes in the bathroom, you know, in the tiny bathroom, in that tiny bathtub, those happy scenes of the two sisters, because there aren't that many of them, where um, yeah. are like these these breezes that wash into the film. Yeah, and it was a it was a, a lovely shoot. The weather was absolutely perfect. It was I think mid seventies, not a cloud in the sky, and all the credit is due to my cinematographer Frake Sonderland, who is based in Amsterdam, <laughs> and he is. A wonderful, absolutely wonderful cinematographer. We just had such a great collaboration. He has such a phenomenal eye. And that was one of the more enjoyable shoot dates just because everything kind of aligned for us. And the way the women, Talia and Tawny, interacted was so fantastic. And they had such a natural chemistry between the two of them and such a natural physicality. The hammock is meant to like evoke the womb and the way they would have been in the womb where I feel like Tawny would have been like the bigger twin that probably like kind of embraced the smaller twin, which was Kira. And that ability to be physical with somebody in such a natural way that's not a romantic way, it's just a, a familial way. But yeah, it is one of the more beautiful scenes out there. And it is, the thing is that the film is written mostly indoors, as you mentioned. The main reason is budgetary. It's just cheaper to shoot indoors than outdoors. And I had basically crafted the story to suit the specific budget that I had in mind. And so therefore it is like a pretty intense story. And the fact that you are kind of choked off into these very few locations, I think serves the narrative well. But the original reason that this all happened and the way the narrative happened was budgetary. I would have loved to have had more exteriors, had people breathe, and maybe I would have written a story that <laughs> that might have been happier. <laughs> I don't know. It's more costly to shoot an exterior shot. Can you explain that? Why the interior shots are more budget-friendly? Well, basically, any time that you're shooting an exterior is you are at the whim of weather. So if the weather doesn't allow you to shoot, you need to, you're losing a day that you plan to shoot outside, or you have to have what is called a cover set. So you have to have plan B where uh, you can just like run, like it starts raining. Okay. Plan B covers our cover set. That's close enough. So basically it's for a micro budget film. It's just not feasible. Bigger budget films do have this kind of planning, but micro budget films cannot. I mean, I shot this in 15 and a half days. Oh, wow. We couldn't, there was no way to, to have cover sets or the capacity to come back to a location and shoot. So basically, yeah, it's just the weather. It's also what your exterior is, but if it's an exterior in a city street where there is permits, where there are extra where there's like people walking through so then there are all of those considerations 
Do you need to lock off a street, which is obviously something we couldn't do? Yeah. Well, what what is the process? Because that's a whole other, like, you know, when you're walking down the streets of New York and you see the, the signs from the mayor's office of film and television saying the name of the project. We had, we had no signs. We were too low budget for that. But one thing that I would say to anybody who's not in the film industry, that if somebody with a, a walkie-talkie <laughs> clipped to his ear begs you to cross the street because they're shooting... Don't walk through. Don't push them aside. Yeah. They're working hard. It's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> so, yeah, just just do what he is begging you <laughs> to do because he's yeah. underpaid and, like, they're just trying to keep the street clear. However, in, we did not do any of that. I specifically wrote it that we wouldn't have to do any of that because that just costs more money, takes more time. Right. Well, I'm glad that when you were talking about the beautiful hammock scene that you brought up the synergy between the actors, because one of the things that occurred to me as I was watching was that those two actresses, not only did they seem like they could be sisters, they did seem like they could be fraternal, or I guess the phrase may be sororal twins. What qualities were you looking for in actors during the audition process? And what did Tawny, Talia, and Michael bring to their auditions that made you have that aha moment that made you know that you'd found your Inez and Akira and Doug? Yeah, I, I love this question because I I am so in love with the work that the actors did and that the actors themselves. So, all right, let me unpack this step by step. So first of all, what I look for in auditions as a director is whether the person, the actor can take direction. However they do it, I will ask them to do, even if they read it the way I envisioned shooting it, I will ask them to try to read it in a different way and just to see how the person can work with me, whether they understand me, whether they have an emotional intelligence and whether they have the range and they can just like switch on a dime and just change up their performance. That's the most important thing. We were incredibly lucky to work with a phenomenal casting director named Paul Schnee. The casting agency is Barden Schnee and they do so many movies, everything from indies to Oscar winning to huge films. and. Without them, there's no way that we could have had these actors. Absolutely no way. I would say to anybody who's an aspiring filmmaker, I would say like stop and go to film school. But the second thing I would say is like a casting director is so incredibly important. Unless you are an actor and you have actor friends and like you know like who everybody's going to, all right, you already got, got it all cast with your friends. Right. That's fine. If you are not in the acting world, and a casting director is of utmost importance. They are more important than your cinematographer. They are more important than your editor. They are just like the main thing because the number one thing is the script. The number two thing is the actors. That's who your viewers are going to be looking at for 93 minutes, you know? So... And there's absolutely no way in the world that I could have had access to such caliber actors without our casting director. And so I'll start with Michael. Michael at, at the time had more name recognition than anybody else. I had seen him in film and television, like everything from Captain Phillips to Mistress America and Origins of the New Black. He's been on a ton of stuff. So I didn't need to audition him, obviously, and he was also at a level where like you just make an offer. He did not audition. Right. I made him an offer, we had lunch, and I remember he, he told me, he reminded me of this later. 
because I totally forgot it because I think I was like so stressed out. But we met and one of the things he asked me was that like how are you, there are so many emotional it's an emotional roller coaster really for this character. How are you going to get my character, me as an actor, to all of these high highs and lows right. in fifteen and a half days? <laughs> and according to him, I don't remember this at all, I blacked it out. According to him, I said, I don't know. <laughs> Ah, he probably loved that. <laughs> <laughs> and he and he said to me in hindsight, he was like, well, I thought like, well, at least she's honest. But the thing is that like, I knew that he could do it. I knew right. his body of work enough to where I knew 100% that he could do it. And, and oh my God, he did. He's amazing, phenomenal. The two women we did audition, well, let me start with Talia. So Talia physically didn't fit the character as written because the character is sort of like supposed to be frumpier than Kira is supposed to be like in the shadow of Inez always, not only because of the personality, but physically as well. Like as when she was younger, she was probably like a little bit chubbier. Her braces were on for longer. Her probably <laughs> she had glasses, probably more acne. And so Talia is an amazingly beautiful woman. And so one of the problems that I had was that like, Oh, well, She's an amazing actress. She's hitting all of these emotional notes, but she is, I'm sorry, she's too pretty. And then I just thought, she's like, okay. She's stunning. She, she really she's, is. She's a beautiful woman. And, and, but I was like, you know, I'm just going to take the person who is the best actor, and she was the best actor for that role. And we kind of tried to, like, frump her up a little bit, <laughs> you know, tried to, tried to <laughs> rough up the edges, but it, it was very hard because she is a an incredibly beautiful woman. <laughs> My goodness, like the breadth of performance that she gave was absolutely wonderful. And then with Tawny, I had this very interesting experience. This was, I think, our first day of auditions. And I was a little bit early and I went into the ladies' room and Tawny was in the ladies' room. And she didn't know who I was. And she was, she just come out of the stall and she was washing her hands. I saw her and I obviously knew she was here to read for Inna's. And I saw her and I thought, this is somebody that I wrote that has come to life. Wow. I, okay. I seriously just got chills when you said that. And I'm I got chills when it happened. And every time that oh I tell goodness. a story, I still get chills. I was just like, I created a live human being. <laughs> I willed this person. This person didn't exist. Like now they are in flesh right, and blood right. standing in front of him because everything about her mannerism, she was... First of all, she's strikingly beautiful. She's so magnetic. Her eyes, her bone structure, it was like, anyway, so I, I just saw her. She didn't know me from Adam. And I was like, you got thing. the part. <laughs> I had this, this feeling and then she read and my God, I still have the video from the audition. It's just like, it's so intense. She just has whatever it is. It's like, it's so deep, it's so intense. I never asked her actually about like, where are you? Have you had experience with this? I didn't want to, right. I don't want to intrude because you have right. your work that you do and I have my work that I do. And this is like such a personal thing, but my God, whatever she was giving, she was giving her all. And it was, it was amazing. And now um, people can see her on Showtime's Yellow Jackets. She's oh. one of the leads there. Wonder, uh, it's, well, it's so fascinating hearing you speaking about Tawny in this way, because when I was watching the film, 
anytime she was in a shot, I mean, regard any scene, I just, I, you're just sitting there going, oh my God, the camera loves her. Even in the most harrowing, emotionally draining scenes where she's going through these humiliating situations or painful situations, she still looked gorgeous, you know, but it varied from like happy gorgeous to emotionally raw gorgeous. And I think part of it has to do with her beauty, her physical beauty, but I think also she just, one of the things that struck me was that she clearly has so much emotional availability, which it's a treasure for an actor to have that because some actors really struggle with that. You know, I've taken acting classes just for fun, not for wanting to be an actor. And, you know, you see, we all, we're human beings. We all have our little emotional baggage. We're schlepping around and it gets in the way of quote unquote, the work. And it's amazing when you see somebody who just can bring all that to the table. And actually all the actors were like that where they all had to bring so many emotional colors to the scenes. And I think Doug really had some humiliating moments in the scene. I'm thinking of Lewis. Wow. It must have been another guy. And as you may know, she had many. You know, Nez thought you were too unattractive to ever reject her. <sighs> Maybe she should have tried you. It's a tough script, and I was nervous about that, actually, like how they would take all of that, and they took it, because some of these things are like really insulting to them, and I commend their professionalism because they rolled with it. They used it to inform their acting choices. They are just, to the last day player, every actor that came in, I am so incredibly lucky and happy to have worked with, and I am so grateful that they gave me a chance especially the three, because they also had a very difficult, like physically, it was a difficult thing. It was crammed. It was so fast. And not only were they doing an emotionally difficult script, they were working in, unfortunately, very, very difficult conditions. And that's, I guess, the one thing that I mainly regret is that there's no way, though, that I could have done any better because of the budget. I couldn't have done any better for them. They, they really are the champions of this film, in so many ways. Well, it's interesting that not only are Inez and Kira sisters, but an essential ingredient of the plot is that they're twins. And that's a whole other level of siblingdom. And I know in a past very wonderful interview with our All Arts channel, you said that you've always been fascinated by twins. So it's it's a rather random fascination, I imagine. Uh, I was an only child and a very lonely one with a single mom, and we went through an immigrant refugee experience. Mm -hmm. So I basically I was just like incredibly alone for my entire childhood and and adolescence, and and I probably just always dreamed of having a sibling or somebody that I could share with. I actually do have a, a half-brother who was born when I was 16, but it's obviously a very different, it's more like a half-sibling, half-child situation, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> the relationship that we have. So twins were very interesting to me because at the same time, it seems to me like it's the closest bond you could have with another human being, considering that you shared a room and you were born together. And also, if there is a sibling rivalry, it probably is the most intense with twins as well. So it is these two kind of opposing natural forces that are at play there. And to me, it seems like the ultimate literary foil 
in this case, especially, it's sort of an experiment for nature versus nurture. So with mental illness, um, it's like, well, one is happens to be completely mentally stable and the other one is not. The thing about suicide is that I feel like suicidal ideation is something that you either totally get or like not at all. Right. So I felt like Kira, as a mentally stable person, probably would never consider suicide for herself. But the way I imagined it is that she understood what Kira was feeling. She was able to understand it. And Doug, the reason Doug is having such a hard time with the grief is that, and, and she says it to him, she's like, you just, you just don't understand it. You cannot understand it. I can understand it. So that is one of the other things is that suicide is one of those things that's very difficult for most people to comprehend or talk about. And I wanted this character there who has just through this biological fact of nature, the fact that she was related to this person, to have this understanding to it, but be the translator into the real world, be able to translate it to people who can't understand it, just be like, this person needed to do this. This person needed to kill themselves. Right. You cannot understand it, but trust me, that needed to happen. Right. And I think also it, it, it's a very sensitive portrayal of somebody really, really grappling with bipolar disorder and mental illness and then ultimately suicide, but also very kind of brutally honest and unflinching. And issues of mental illness and suicide are in the news now more than ever, so much of it, you know, I think pandemic-induced mental health issues. What are you hoping that viewers will take away from watching your film? I'm just hoping to open up lines of conversation about it because even though we, we've we made great strides as a society in terms of de-stigmifying it, mental illness is still rather taboo, rather shameful to talk about. As you mentioned, there is a lot more prevalence of suicide, mental illness, all sorts of addiction, in large part due to the pandemic that we've experienced that has left us isolated. And so I'm really hoping that the first step to any kind of help is talking about it or thinking about it. But that's, that's the only thing that we can hope for, right, is that people just, just are are able to open up more about it and talk more about it. And talking is the first step to being able to get help if, if help is available. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's hard for people to ask for help. And I think sometimes, maybe sometimes it's hitting a rock bottom situation. Without revealing any spoilers, I thought it was so powerful that the very last line in your film is, I need help. I won't, no spoilers, so I'm not going to say who says it. But I thought, okay, now there's, that's what this is all about. That's what this whole film is pointing to. And it was such a powerful ending punctuation note for the story. And I hope that lots of people will tune in and, and we look forward to seeing more of your work as well. But before we part, any advice for aspiring filmmakers with big dreams and small budgets? Gosh, you're going to edit this out probably. <laughs> <laughs> but in all honesty, um, do something else. It is just too it's hard. So too, it's too hard. It's too heartbreaking. One of the things that I was telling a friend is that, like, imagine you realize that your dream, your greatest aspiration in life is to sing, right? Right. Um, 
it's very difficult to be able to make a career, uh, to make a living by singing. However, you can still sing every day. You can sing in the shower. You can sing everywhere. You just may not be able to eat <laughs> by singing. Right. But if you realize that your greatest calling in life is directing, even the most successful directors get to direct very rarely. And that is the one thing that I think most aspiring filmmakers don't get told or they don't realize it. It's just very difficult to do your craft because the craft involves so much money and other people and everything coming together in order for you to practice it. It's easier now with, you know, every iPhone has a camera, sure. Right. But it's, it's, not, it's not exactly the same and it's, it's just a very hard business in every way. And it's just, it's just brutal. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. You'll be, you'll be, you'll be happier ultimately. Just don't do it. That's Just my enjoy advice. life in a hammock. <laughs> Swing Just back enjoy and forth life in, in a hammock. hammock. But honestly, like go into account. Like I'm sure you'll be happier as an accountant. I, I, I guarantee, <laughs> in fact, that you will be happier as an accountant. Like just as a person, you'll be happier. Okay, so you have the advice right there and then, um, <laughs> right here and now. But I think also, I think also, it's also a test. You know, I think actors in theater and on Broadway, and when asked a similar question, it's always like, if you there's anything else you can possibly do, please do it. But thank you so much for this exciting conversation. It was. I feel like I, I've learned so many fascinating things about the film, and I really do feel like I need to go rewatch it again with <laughs> my my new eyes. And congratulations not only on, you know, having a broadcast on your 13, but just what a monumental accomplishment. <laughs> Thank you so much. Inez and Doug and Kira will premiere on Real 13 on Saturday, September 10th at 1225 a.m. And if you are DVRing the film, we recommend that you add an extra 10 or 15 minutes to your recording time to ensure that you've recorded the entire film. Because we've all had that experience where we sit down to watch that miniseries or whatever it is, and then the last five minutes are lopped off. And... If you want to learn more about 13's Real 13 Saturday Night Film Series, which consists of a double feature and a short film selected by viewer voting, visit real13.org. That's R-E-E-L, the number 13.org. Thank you to our audio engineer, Josh Broom, our executive producer and editor, Dana McBride, and our production coordinator, Rita Grafeo. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you for spending time with us. Please join us again for another episode of WNET Up Next. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and WNET.org slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at upnext at WNET.org. Love the podcast? Become a subscriber. It's free. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the design, on-air promotion, fundraising, and traffic department of the WNET Group. I'm Alisa Lichtenbaum. 